from the University of Texas at Austin, KUT Radio. This is In Black America. So looking at the value of the body at death and then beyond and, and how they were traded as part of this domestic cadaver trade, that was one of my big, big aha moments. The other was just that I felt like one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book was that there were so many scholars that had written about slave prices or they would talk about the values of slaves, but they never really put it in context. So my goal when I set, set out to do this book was to figure out a way to let people know what it means for someone to be worth $700 in 1820. Then when I finished the book and I had this large data set, I realized, okay, I have you know 80,000 figures. I think I used 55 in the book, 55,000. That's nowhere near representative of the four million of those that were, were freed. So I felt like I couldn't make the kind of statements that I wanted to make about what these prices mean because I don't know the values of all these individuals and, and 55,000 is, is just such a small fraction of the larger amount of enslaved people that there were. So I thought, okay, well, what else is coming out? And as I was researching, I kept seeing how enslaved people felt. Dr. Diana Ramey Berry, Associate Professor of History and African and African Diaspora Studies at the University of Texas at Austin, and author of The Price for Their Pound of Flesh, published by Beacon Press. After more than 10 years of research, Berry has come up with the first book to chronicle the economic value of enslaved people through every period of their lives, including preconception, childhood, adulthood, senior years, and death. Not until now has anyone really looked at the domestic cadaver trade and traced the illicit sales of dead bodies to medical schools. Also, Barry reveals how enslaved people recalled and responded to being appraised, bartered, and sold throughout the course of their lives. Just when you thought you knew everything you needed to know regarding slavery, Barry gives us a profoundly humane look at an inhumane institution. I'm Johnny O'Hanson, Jr., and welcome to another edition of In Black America. On this week's program, The Price for Their Pound of Flesh, with author Dr. Diana Ramey Berry, In Black America. So I actually use any narrative. I'm not, I, I use the narratives from the WPA, the Workers' Progress Administration narratives, which were collected in the 1930s. I use narratives like Frederick Douglass and Solomon Northrop. Um, those are the published narratives that were done sort of by abolition societies. And I also use just small places where I find evidence in plantation records where they'll talk about in a letter back and forth, they might make conversations about this slave said this, and they might have a quote from an enslaved person. Travelers that came through the South, um, that came from the North, abolitionists that came through yeah. and witnessed auctions had really vivid de uh, descriptions. So I really tried to use whatever I could to, to tell these stories. And... I think a number of enslaved people want, and this may sound strange, but I think they want us to recognize them and, and want us to know their stories and, and their contributions to this country. In 1619, a Dutch ship, the White Lion, captured 20 enslaved Africans in a battle with a Spanish ship. They landed at Jamestown, Virginia for repairs from the battle. For food and supplies, the Dutch traded the enslaved Africans. Slavery was practiced throughout the American colonies in the 17th and 18th centuries, and African-American slaves helped build the economic foundation of this nation. In her book, The Price for Their Pound of Flesh, Dr. Diana Ramey Berry gives us a new perspective on the institution of slavery. From what we have been taught about slavery, we never looked at how enslavers and traders placed a monetary value on the enslaved. What coping mechanism did the enslaved use to survive commodification? 
What did they know about their value, and did they care whether or not they commanded a high price or were considered a bargain? Barry spent more than 10 years researching this book and looked at more than 1,000 documents to put this amazing story together. Recently in Black America spoke with Professor Barry. I was born in a small town in Northern California, a small college town called Davis, California, where UC Davis is. And my father was a professor there, and my mother was a professor at a a university in Sacramento, Sac State. And I spent most of my childhood in California and then went to UCLA for my BA, MA, and PhD, and then have been all over the country since then. You talk about, in the beginning of the book, about your vacations that you all took with the parents to show you what America actually was was all about. Yes, yes. That was... We did three and a half trips across the country and um, took pictures of all the state lines, and we actually stayed in campgrounds um, and national park campgrounds, and we learned about the history. My parents took us to Native American reservations, um, slave plantation houses. We did tours, and that was really sort of when I sort of developed the love for history. And what were some of your favorite subjects while you were in high school and college? Well, I thought I was going to be a professor of astronomy, um, mm-hmm. and I wanted to be an astronomer, so I studied um, the constellations, I studied I studied space, I studied the stars and, and everything like that, and, and I was an econ major for my mm-hmm. first four years of undergraduate, right. and I was about to graduate, and I took a black history class and knew I needed to change my major. Long story, but I decided to change my major, and um, from then on, I, was, I decided I was going to be a historian. But it was more than that. You had an African-American teacher, didn't you? I had two different experiences. I had okay. an African-American female teacher, Dr. Brenda Stevenson, who is still teaching at UCLA. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was teaching a class on slavery. And I was really interested in, in the history of slavery. And we studied all the major books that were written by scholars. And I learned how to write what historians call historiography, which is basically putting history in context of when a book was published by the scholar, um, what was going on at the historical moment that that scholar was writing, and um, how they, what kinds of questions they asked. So I learned how to write historiographically um, from Dr. Stevenson. And I decided to stay there and work with her for my MA and my PhD. Prior to coming to UT Austin, what were some of your other positions? So I was, my first job after I left UCLA, I graduated, and I went to Arizona State, and I helped develop the Black Studies program there. I was the first hire there, and I was there for two years, and then I was at Michigan State University working in the Comparative Black History PhD program, which was housed under the History Department. And I was at Michigan State for 10 years, and then I had a fellowship at the National Humanities Center, and at Duke's so I was in North Carolina for a couple of years, and then I came to Texas here in 2010. And what led you to research the book prior to writing it? Well, I actually had been doing work on how enslaved people were priced um, mm-hmm. with my first book, Swing the Sickle, which was a study of two different counties in Georgia. And I had all this record. I had all these records on the values of these of the, these enslaved people on like twelve or thirteen plantations, and I had a database and I had a chapter in my first book. And when the publishers were reading it, they said, "This really sounds like a different topic. It, you know, the, the, it's very economic, mm-hmm. um, and it's very. It's just the, the tone is different. So maybe you should use that for something else." And I thought, "Okay, well, I'm not going to waste all this research." So I'll, <laughs> it became my second book project. And so I started building on this database, and I was collecting individual values of enslaved people, going to archives throughout the South, 
and and in the north as well, looking at where I could find their name, their age, their sex, uh, their value, whether it was a appraised value, appraisal, or if it was a sale like a market price. And I would put that in a, in a chart and I would just keep going. And I was trying to understand how enslaved people were valued over time and whether or not region mattered, whether or not gender mattered, skill, all these kinds of questions that I had asked in Swing the Sickle, I wanted to look at that in a very numerical sort of monetary space. And that's what I came up with and then had a research blessing by meeting Dr. Stanley Ingerman mm-hmm. at a conference at Duke University. And he said, I think I have some stuff that might help you out. <laughs> and then gave me a database of about 55,000 individual slave values that I added with my data set. And that's the basis of the research um, that was used for the price for the pound of flesh. In reading the book, I was having multiple aha moments. What were some of your aha moments once you've done the research and you actually settled down 10 years ago to actually uh, start this process? So I think the biggest one for me was learning that enslaved people were then sold, their bodies, their cadavers were sold after death. And I think I just thought to myself, I, yeah, I'd read a little bit about it. Todd Savitt is a scholar that had written like a couple sentences about it in his work. And there was a few articles in the 70s, but I, I didn't really know much about it. And when I, I saw that, I thought, well, I don't understand this. I need, to, I need to do more research on it. And so I actually ended up doing three more years of the, of, I did 10 years, took me 10 years to write this book. Three years were doing just chapters four and six. Um, and those are the chapters that deal with the medical stuff, right. um, and medical material. And I went to archives and I applied for fellowships and got some library grants to then work at the medical archives and medical libraries. So looking at the value of the body at death and then beyond and and how they were traded as part of this domestic cadaver trade, that was one of my big, big aha moments. The other was just that I felt like one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book was that there were so many scholars that had written about slave prices, or they would talk about the values of slaves, but they never really put it in context. So my goal when I set set out to do this book was to figure out a way to let people know what it means for someone to be worth $700 in 1820. Then but when I finished the book and I had this large data set, I realized, okay, I have you know 80,000 figures. I think I used 55 in the book, 55,000. That's nowhere near representative of the four million of those that were were freed. So I felt like I couldn't make the kind of statements that I wanted to make about what these prices mean because I don't know the values of all these individuals. And, and 55,000 is, is just such a small fraction of the larger amount of enslaved people that there were. So I thought, okay, well, what else is coming out? And as I was researching, I kept seeing how enslaved people felt about being treated as a commodity. And it just kept everything I read, it was like they had so many opinions and thoughts about their values that I I wanted to write about that. So I shifted a little bit, and I, I really tried to focus on, you know, what what is the enslaved contribution to this conversation about their commodification? What can we learn about how they felt, what they thought, and how they experienced the auction block at every stage of their lives? Because all the studies that did work on prices and values only looked at prime-age males, right. you know, 18 to 30. Didn't really look at women didn't look at the elderly, didn't look at infants and toddlers. And so I wanted to trace the whole life cycle of an enslaved person and how their bodies were commodified, but how they fought back against that level of indignity that they were experiencing in the auction. I understand. If you're just joining us, I'm Johnny O'Hanson, Jr., and you're listening to In Black America from KUT Radio. And we're speaking with Dr. Diana Ramey Berry, Associate Professor of History in African and Africana Diaspora Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. 
and author of The Price of Their Pound of Flesh. Dr. Berry, what's the difference between when you're writing a book between price and value? Oh, great question. So when I'm, I'm very particular about what words I'm using. And in the book, we spent a lot of time um, in, the, in the editorial stages of it, making sure that I, I wasn't um, confusing the reader. So a price is actual, when, when they were actually sold, the market price mm-hmm. is a specific monetary value that represents a moment in time. So like if somebody, you know, you buy a, a person on the auction block and you might be, they might be going back and forth. They're valued at $600, but they might, the sale price for them when they're sold might be $800. So, but I also look at value as the value, how they value themselves. So I look at value in a very broad sense too, not just the monetary value. So oftentimes you'll see me say in the book, fiscal value, monetary value, appraised value, because there's values of people where they made projections. Like I might think if I'm going to buy this person, I think they're worth, uh, you know, they're worth $500. Your value for them, you know, the the value that you would give to them or ascribe to them might be $600. Mm -hmm. Until we actually have a transaction, I don't usually recognize that as a price until we say this is how the person was sold for. And I'm very careful about that because I don't like, I don't, I don't believe that you could even put a price tag on a person's body, right. you know, and that's what I I tried to get at with the way that enslaved people talked about themselves and how, you know, I'll tell you what a first rate bargain is for me. You know, first rate bargain for me is to be able to work the fields myself, you know, to toil and, and live on my own and to make, you know, to make these crops for my family and to raise my family. That's what a first rate bargain is. Not, you know, $600, $800. They could care less about their prices. I found it interesting in the book where you write about enslavers had an annual appraisal of their enslaved. Mm -hmm. So every year they had to keep an inventory, and this is why a lot of the records I use are inventories of how they appraise the values of their enslaved people. So there are these large ledger books that will have every person listed, and it will have their name, their age, and then their appraised value. Um, Some of this was for tax purposes because they were taxed on enslaved people. Um, there were county taxes that, that were assessed on enslaved people's bodies. Um, and some of this was also just so they could value their estate. Mm-hmm. And what you find is some enslavers had more value in human bodies than they did in land. Mm. Also, I found it interesting you had a, a term soul value. Mm-hmm. So soul value is, is this, this notion that I, that I think is, is really how enslaved people had a valuation of their bodies and their souls that nobody could touch. Mm-hmm. It couldn't be commodified. And it was, it was, it's expressed in a number of ways. And I tried to trace that throughout the book. And as people age, you find them expressing it in more overt ways. So somebody might express their soul values. It's, it's an internal value. For some people, it's spiritual. For some people, it's just about a will to survive and a will to live. And I, I talk about a number of people who express their soul values, like my favorite person in the book is Isaac mm-hmm. in chapter five, who's right. going to be hung um, for leading or planning a rebellion. And he doesn't want um, anybody else to hang but himself, but they're going to, they ended up hanging the other people that they accused. Right. But instead of letting them pull the ropes um, and let his, you know, let him hang, he jumped to his own death. And so I think to me, that's an expression of his soul value of him saying, I'm going to die on my own terms. You know, you can't, you don't get to take my soul. You might have my body, you might own me, you might trade me, you might transfer me, but you cannot own my soul. And so for me, a soul value, soul values are just these really unique 
ways and forms of expression that enslaved people used to survive the institution of slavery. Um, and I'm actually writing an article on soul values because I'm I'm going back and looking at all these other enslaved people who expressed it in other ways. I just really just introduced it in this book. Right. Um, I didn't go into great depth on it, um, but it's something that is, is dear to me. I found it interesting where you wrote about that a law at some point where you couldn't import African slaves. Mm -hmm. Tell mm -hmm. us about that. Well, one of the things I was, most of the book is about the domestic slave trade. So I'm mm -hmm. looking at those that were traded after they arrived in America. Right. The transatlantic slave trade abolished slavery in 1808, mm -hmm. on January 1st of 1808. And we're coming up on our anniversary of that right now. At any rate, they abolished the, the trans by bringing Af Africans directly from Africa. Well, that was that was abolished in 1808. And because of that, this domestic market really took off. Now, mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that the domestic trade did not happen prior to 1808, right. because we know it began around 1760s, according to historian Stephen Daly. Um, 1760s, we found some trading, internal trading on, on U.S. soil. and But really, after the supply the supply source of African slaves is cut off after 1808. The domestic market really takes off. And about one million enslaved people were traded within this domestic market. You know, some of these transactions are small transactions between one neighbor to another. Mm -hmm. Some of them are large auctions at an auction house or at a courthouse. But this is how, you know, the average enslaved person changed hands about four times in their lifetime. So they're being sold at least four times around. You know, and that's the average that we've come up with. And so this makes a big difference when there's not a supply source of Africans coming in mm -hmm. and they're forcing women to breed and forcing men to breed with women and to create more sources of labor because that supply is now cut off. Talk to us about the difference between African enslaved women versus American enslaved women. Well, that's an interesting question because when you say the differences between, it depends on um, the... Were first... there differences? I mean... As far African as priority, African-born, yes. So there were some, I'll say, I call them stereotypes because some okay. some traders and planters would say they preferred American-born. Mm -hmm. um, and it depends on the time period. I mean, okay. I'm being very general here. Mm -hmm. um, but they'll say that Africans in, in general, they felt like those that were born in Africa, Africa or in different parts of West Africa right. were more rebellious. And they would okay. then talk about specific, those from the Senegambia region, um, those that are Fulani, those are that are Mende, you know, Mende di different peoples of uh, different groups in Africa. They would say these are more rebellious than those groups. Now, we scholars are saying that this is somewhat stereotype mm. or racial profiling, you know, as we see, <laughs> that's more contemporary term. But most African-born individuals had experienced freedom because they were captured and taken into slavery. Right. Those that were American-born that were born into slavery had never experienced freedom. And so they, so some planters and traders would say they prefer American-born um, because they weren't as rebellious. And so that's, that's the conversation that scholars are having. But, you know, women in general, whether they were African-born or American-born, um, were very valuable laborers. And they did um, oftentimes the same amount of work that men did in the fields, um, and they were often the winners of inner farm cotton picking competitions and and um, were very much valued for their reproductive labor as well. Talk to us about the difference in age groups as far as the value of the enslaved. There were, there were certain periods along their life expectancy in which the prices variated. So um, what I found, and this is the same, this is not a new discovery, um, I just gave more context to it, but what I found is that there's a bell curve 
if you look at the if we were to draw a line to show the lives the lives of enslaved people and how their values change over time, it's a bell curve. And so, from zero to ten years old, males and females, boys and girls, or infants and toddlers, were often similar prices, almost the same price. You don't start seeing gender distinctions between their values until they reach those ages of puberty, mm-hmm. and when they can go work in the fields or in homes or or um, or workshops, you know, because I always talk about enslaved people didn't just work in the field and in the house. Right. They worked in all kinds of settings, like universities and and um, and brick brick making factories and all kinds of industrial settings as well. At any rate, the value of an enslaved person it increased until about age twenty three to twenty four for women, maybe twenty six. I mean, mid twenties, mm-hmm. and then you start seeing it go down because why? Those are their childbearing years. Um, and for men, their value sort of held strong about until age 30, 31, and then they started decreasing as they aged. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't find a 35-year-old female that has a high value. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we do still see that. It doesn't mean that women didn't give birth after 30, because I do have women in this book that gave birth in their early 30s. Um, but most women started giving birth in their late teens, and their 20s were their major childbearing years, and then they would start to decline. So the values of their bodies, um, the external values of their bodies start to decline um, in their late 20s, early 30s. I found it interesting that you actually found someone in record by the name of Bathsheba. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tell us about it. Well, there's a number of, of I mean, there's a number of, of names, uh, and I, I was actually doing work on, on the names mm-hmm. because there's biblical names. There are also sort of classical Greek names that you find. But some women gave birth and they were sick and mm-hmm. they were having trouble and they were having pains like Bathsheba. And people were concerned, like, is she faking? You know, do, is she really pregnant? You know, is she really having these pains that she's describing? Um, and that's something that happens throughout this, this history. And I find this often where we look at another woman in the book named Rachel, mm-hmm. who was listed on this list. And everybody was guaranteed sound and healthy except for Rachel because her menses were irregular. Mm -hmm. So to have an advertisement in a newspaper about something very private and personal, I thought was just really shocking, you know, and and a testament to some of their things that they had to go through and experience. I also found an interest about Frederick Douglass. I would never would have imagined that his life story, some of it would have been documented and included, particularly in this book. Well, you know, Douglas is an interesting person, um, and I, it's someone who I'm actually writing about in this article on soul values, because we have such a great, we have three different um, narratives that he, or autobiographies mm-hmm. that he wrote, so we can look at different periods mm-hmm. of his life, and how he talks, and how his memories change a little bit, you know? Right. But he's also very vivid, and he's got very vivid details about values, and about, you know, witnessing his aunt, you know, Hester's beating, mm-hmm. um, and, and how that had an impact on him. So I actually use any narrative. I'm not. I I use the narratives from the WPA, the Workers' Progress Administration narratives, which were collected in the 1930s. I use narratives like Frederick Douglass and Solomon Northrop. Um, those are the published narratives that were done sort of by abolition societies. And I also use just small places where I find evidence in plantation records where they'll talk about in a letter back and forth, they might make conversations about this slave said this, and they might have a quote from an enslaved person. Travelers that came through the South, um, that came from the North, abolitionists that came through and witnessed auctions, had really vivid uh, descriptions. So I really tried to use whatever I could to, to tell these stories. And I think a number of enslaved people want, and this may sound strange, but I think they want us to recognize them and 
and want us to know their stories and, and their contributions to this country. Was there any point during this project that you actually had to put it down and just step back away from it? Several points. And I so many points in this project I can't even recall. There there more there were more there was one point where I actually stopped working for a week mm-hmm. and and I had a trouble because I had read a story, it was a court record on a gang rape of like a third is a twelve or thirteen year old little girl. And I got sick I literally got sick in the archives reading the details of it. And I decided not to put it in the book. And I really don't know where it is, to be quite honest, because I, I left, I, I shut down and left for a week. Um, and I was on a, I was on a, a trip out of state when, mm-hmm. um, at the time. But um, there were other points where the work was so heavy and very depressing that it was hard for me to be around too many people. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes we do Sunday dinners, our family with other families, and sometimes I just didn't feel like sitting through Sunday dinner. Okay. Um, I didn't want to talk about, or I, I was, I had spent the whole day writing about a burial or a funeral, and I was reading the hymnals that they sang, um, and I was, you know, looking at the words and that might have been exchanged, um, the scriptures that were read, and I was, I was literally, I feel like I had been burying somebody. Like, I had just mm-hmm. come from a funeral, and I didn't feel like talking that day. So I had a lot of those experiences that were, you know, one or two days here and there, but throughout the whole time, and I have friends now that have seen me through this process, and they're like, you're not doing any more books on slavery, are you? <laughs> but this is my thing. This is what I do. Tell us about the life insurance policy that some of the enslavers took out on the enslaved. So the life insurance policies are very interesting, and um, I think are going to get more traction. There's a one scholar, Sharon Murphy, who's written about this, investing in life. She's got a chapter mm-hmm. on slave insurance. But what I found was, I really, as I said, was looking for any source that had the monetary values of enslaved people. Mm-hmm. And I found them when they were going as part of the domestic slave trade and they were being transferred. Let's say someone sold you know, 30 of their slaves. They were going to send them um, on a ship. And they would often insure them for the ship passage. Mm-hmm. Let's say they were going from Maryland to Mobile, Alabama, you know. So they would, and they were going on the eastern seaboard, you know, across the Atlantic and down the Gulf of Florida. They would sometimes insure them for that journey. Okay. And then once they got there, then they, the insurance policy would end once they then were transferred to somebody or they, they sold these people. So I started doing more research, and I came across a, a record um, that I really am doing more work on now, um, the Southern Mutual Life Insurance Company records. And those records had more than 4,000 policies throughout the, throughout the South and sometimes multiple policies per person. They went from anywhere from three-month policies to five-year policies. Some of them were renewed, but it had the name, the age, the sex, the owner, the enslaved person's value, and then it had interest, premium, and then sometimes comments about their health quality. And that was such a rich document for me. It took almost two graduate students and two summers for us to transcribe it um, because the handwriting was so poor. Mm-hmm. And I'm now doing more work on that. But then I found the company records where they talk about the decision to ins- invest in slave insurance policies. So you find them initially in around the 1840s. Sometimes, some of them are in 1830s, but 1840s and 1850s onward, you'll find slave life insurance policies. And they often had a medical examiner that would come and examine the enslaved person to determine what the value was on that policy. Dr. Diana Ramey Barrett, Associate Professor of History in African and African Diaspora Studies at the University of Texas at Austin, and author of The Price for Their Pound of Flesh. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions as to future In Black America programs, email us at inblackamerica at kut.org. Also, let us know what radio station you heard is over. 
Remember to like us on Facebook and to follow us on Twitter. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station or of the University of Texas at Austin. You can hear previous programs online at KUT.org. Until we have the opportunity again for technical producer David Alvarez, I'm Johnny O'Hanson, Jr. Thank you for joining us today. Please join us again next week. CD copies of this program are available and may be purchased by writing In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 300 West Dean Keaton Boulevard, Austin, Texas, 78712. That's In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 300 West Dean Keaton Boulevard, Austin, Texas, 78712. This has been a production of KUT Radio.